0: Well, good morning. It's great to be back together with you today. I was off the last couple of weeks. The first week I was actually, uh, uh, took a week off to celebrate my 37th wedding anniversary with uh, the wife of my youth. Yeah, thank you. applause is for her for putting up with me that long. And then last week we had a um, uh, a mission speaker just to remind us about the, the work that CMA is doing around the world. And so that means I had a couple of weeks, and it became readily apparent to me uh, about a third of the way through the sermon in the, uh, in, the, in the last service that I had way too much time to study. <laughs> so buckle up. This week while I was driving home, I turned on a Christian radio station. The speaker, a well-known pastor that many of you know, if I said his name, you would know him, he was teaching on what is apparently one of his favorite topics, prophecy. It seems like every time I hear him speak, that's what he's talking about. Don't misunderstand me. He's a great pastor, an excellent teacher. I I largely agree with him. I like him. If I lived in the West, I would go to his church. But But he spoke, as he usually does, with great clarity and confidence on this topic of which there is considerable ambiguity and, frankly, disagreement. I remember thinking, I wish I could have that kind of confidence, You see, three weeks ago, we began what is called the Olivet Discourse, so named because it took place on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem in full view of the temple complex. Jesus himself is talking, uh, per his disciples' request, on the topic of of prophecy. In fact, you might be interested to know it's the longest uh, of Jesus' discourses in in, in the Gospel of Mark. It, It takes place at the end of a very long Tuesday of Passion Week. Remember, he's going to die on Friday. He's preparing his disciples for his departure. Now, as I mentioned, very long Tuesday, a day in which he did verbal battle with religious leaders. The the day before, he had cleansed the temple of their religious chicanery. This was highly significant. There's a sense in which Jesus was, was bringing the religious Sham that had evolved in the temple to a close. Actually, more than that, the the time for the temple and its sacrifices was done. The religious leaders they were a little irritable and asked by what authority he did these things, and and thus began the back and forth. Several groups attacking Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, trying to trap them, unable to do so. Jesus also launched a counterattack with much more success. Now, now, if you compare the gospel narratives, you'll find that Jesus also did some extensive teaching during this very long Tuesday. For example, in Matthew, there's the parable of the two sons in which he, he pegs these religious leaders. There's also the parable of the landowner in which he pegs these religious leaders. There's the parable of the marriage feast in which, say with me, he pegs these religious leaders. In fact, in Matthew 23, the entire chapter is devoted to exposing these guys. He pronounces no less than seven woes against them. In, in, in Mark, in addition to cleansing the temple yesterday, cursing the fig tree, these verbal battles which unfolded, we also saw the parable of the vine growers in which he pegs these religious leaders. In, in Luke, there is much the same. What's my point? Jesus is clearly done with, fault, with his faults legalistic practices of the religious leaders of his day. The old covenant, the Mosaic law had done its work, revealing the sinfulness and hypocrisy of humanity. Now it's time to do away with the old covenant and and, and bring the provisions of the new covenant. But first, Jesus shows the emptiness of their religiosity. Of course, the disciples, they didn't get it. They seldom did Never really understood until after the resurrection and, and the coming of the Spirit. So, so after that very long day of, of battle in the temple, as they were leaving the, that Tuesday evening, one of them said, obviously still confused, wow, Jesus, aren't these buildings and, and stones of the temple wonderful? Pretty impressive stuff. Uh, apparently they hadn't caught the tenor of both Jesus' actions and his words over the past couple of days. So Jesus says this... This impressive temple and, and all that it represents is history. You see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left standing on another. It's all going to be wiped out. This would have been shocking to the disciples. They make their way across the Kidron Va- Valley, apparently in stunned silence. Jesus sits down on the Mount of Olives, assuming the position of, of the teacher, Temple spread out before him. Four of the disciples, two sets of brothers, regained their voices and asked, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are are going to be fulfilled? Now now here's the question. What are these things that they're asking about? Well, obviously it's the things that Jesus had just prophesied, the destruction of the temple. So, So Jesus launches into this prophetic, all of that discourse, of which, again, there is some ambiguity and considerable disagreement. You see, the further question is, what exactly did Jesus say in his answer? It's a little confusing. I mean, was he only talking about the destruction of, of the temple, or, or does he throw in his second coming as well? And you need to know that the people are all over the map. Which leads me back to my opening statement. I wish I had the confidence that that many have to say this is definitively what Jesus said in his answer. I have a number of very good commentaries, lots of really good commentaries on the Gospel of Mark, good and godly and faithful authors. And they don't agree. So I will do my best to teach this text, and if I sound less than confident... Or if you disagree, that's okay. Lots of other people do too. And then now, maybe that doesn't inspire confidence in you, but I'm trying to be honest with you and not come across like I have all of the answers. I don't. And frankly, neither does anyone else. As I shared with you three weeks ago, some people uh, take what, on this uh, Mark chapter 13, they take what is called a preterist position. That is that everything that Jesus says in Mark 13 happened by 70 AD when the temple was raised to the ground, destroyed in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Well, there can actually be no denying that that is at least partly right. After all, Jesus had just said that the temple is going to be destroyed. The disciples asked the question, when will these things be? We have to at least assume that Jesus answered their question in some way. But others hold a futurist view. My radio preacher holds that view. That is, most of what we read here is still going to happen sometime in the future. I would suggest most of you hold that position. There can be no doubt, I think, that, that this is at least partly right. After all, in his answer, Jesus talks about himself, the Son of Man, uh, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Well, okay, that hasn't happened yet, so at least that's got to still be future. Still others hold that that part of Mark 13 is talking about the destruction of 70 AD, and and part is talking about the return of Christ sometime in the future. I suggested that I might hold that, remember, lacking confidence, I might hold that position, But then the question becomes, which is which? That is, when is Jesus in his answer talking about the destruction of the temple? And when is he talking about the end times and the return of Christ? It's very confusing. Let me give you an example. I told you that I have many good, godly, biblical, faithful commentaries on the gospel of Mark. So they should all agree, right? Right. The Zondervan exegetical commentary of the New Testament, which is a very good commentary series, by the way, outlines the chapter this way. And the thing that I want you to notice is that it kind of goes back and forth, starting with the first 23 verses talking about the destruction of of Jerusalem, then the Son of Man, then the destruction of Jerusalem, then the the Son of Man. It's okay. The Baker exegetical commentary of the New Testament, also a very good commentary series, says basically the same thing. Great. First 23 verses. Got it. Wonderful hold on. You see, then the pillar New Testament commentary, which is a very good commentary series, maybe my favorite, says that the end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem, is actually only in the first 13 verses, not the first 23 verses. And then we talk about the tribulation, the second coming, then we go back to the temple, and then we talk about the second coming. You go, I'm confused. Good. Um, Then we go to the new international Greek testament commentary, ought to be right, because it's Greek, and we talk about the destruction of the temple, and no, not the first 13 verses, not the first 23 verses, but the first 31 verses before we talk about the second coming. By the way, I'm not going to test you on any of this. The the last one, however, the St. Andrews, and I ought to agree with that one since it's named after me, the St. Andrews expositional commentary says the whole chapter is on the destruction of the temple and has nothing to do with the second coming of Christ, so which one is it? These are all good and godly people. I consulted several other commentaries. Here's what I found. Very few agree perfectly. Why do I share that with you? Do I impress you want with my study? No, so that you can be as confused as I am. <laughs> one thing everybody does agree on is that this is a most Challenging text. I've quoted Bertrand Russell before, who wrote a book on why I'm not a Christian, and he cites Mark chapter 13. He says it's a mess. And then couple Mark 13 with a parallel passage in Mark chapter 24, and we have yet another challenge. Let me put the disciples' questions in Matthew and Mark side by side on the screen. In Mark, as we've seen, they ask the question, tell us, when will these things, the destruction of Jerusalem um, or the the temple be, and what will be the sign that these things are going to be fulfilled? That's basically the same question. When and what will be the sign that we know all of this, namely the destruction of the temple, when is this going to happen? That's the question they ask. Matthew, however, records the question a little bit differently. Tell us, when will these things happen? Happen, that's okay. And what will be the sign, okay, of your coming and the end of the age? What? That's a bit different. It's not a contradiction. Matthew just remembered that they asked more than just about the destruction of the temple. They asked two questions. When will the temple be destroyed and what will be the sign of your coming and the, and the end? Now, now this is incredibly important. For them, they saw those two events, the destruction of the temple and the coming of Christ, as the same thing. They thought they were asking the same question. Same thing. Well, obviously they weren't. I mean, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And don't know if you know this or not, but it's 2017 and we're still here. So obviously, as Jesus answered the question in Matthew, and he answered both questions, and this is clear to everyone regarding the destruction of the temple and and, uh, uh, his return. He talks about both. They just didn't know, the disciples just didn't understand that there was a significant amount of time between the two events that we call the church age that extends between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. We're in that long period of time right now. church age. Are you with me? Nod your heads, like, even if you're sleeping. Okay. Most, again, clearly see this in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus is talking about two events. And yet others argue strenuously that Mark's gospel is talking only about the first event, that is the destruction of the temple, since that is clearly what the, the disciples asked about. But here's the problem. If you put Jesus' answer in Matthew and in Mark side by side, guess what you find? They are almost identical, word for word. My point is, clearly, Jesus is talking about both events, even in Mark chapter 13. And so our job as students of the Word of God is to try and discover which is which. (laughs) Anybody want to take over? I'm going to suggest that much of what Jesus says about the first event, the destruction of the temple, also finds further fulfillment in the second event, the coming of Christ. Now, you may not agree, but hey, I've got the microphone. <laughs> Here's another thing I want you to remember. This whole chapter, regardless, listen to me, even if you've tuned out, tune back in. Regardless of where we draw the lines in this chapter between these two events, the whole chapter's purpose is talking about watchfulness, preparedness, being on the alert and looking for destruction, looking for the coming of Christ. It is not so that we can see certain signs that that we will look at today and, and, and set dates. It is so that we will keep our eyes heavenward longing for the coming of Christ. Besides, this may come as a shock to some of you. Today we're going to see that the signs that Jesus talks about are not signs um, uh, signaling either event. They're not signs. Rather, they are descriptions of what must take place before both events. This is going to throw you for a loop, I promise So with all that rather long introduction, look at the text with me. Mark chapter 13, verses 5 to 13. When will these things happen? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. What? We ask you, okay. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And then when you hear of wars and rumors of wars cue the music. Do not be frightened. These things must take place, but that is not yet the end. What? Is that what they tell me at the prophecy conference. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. What? What? Be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And so when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For if you, For it is... Not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. You see? Many of you have heard these things, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines signaling the soon return of Christ. Maybe, maybe not. Actually, in both Matthew and Mark, they are simply things th- th- that must take place before the destruction of the temple. Everyone agrees this is talking about the destruction of the temple. But I think also many agree that this will continue through the church age as well. Regardless, they are not signs signaling the end. Rather, they are simply the beginning of birth pains. They are, they are labor pains, if you will, reminding us that the end is coming You see, labor pains remind us that something else is coming. The birth of a child, right? (laughs) Uh, As it relates to the first event, something much worse is coming. As it relates to the second event, the coming of Christ. It brings great joy. Just like we endure labor. Actually, we don't endure labor pains. Just to be clear, I did did have written down, we endure labor pains. I was there for the birth of three of my children and I was a coach, and I was indeed exhausted at the end of their birth, but I did not endure the labor pains. And, and by the way, not in my notes, neither was that statement, but by the way, um, I hear every once in a while, this just popped into my brain, that gets a little, me a little dangerous, I hear every once in a while that when a man, when a man has a kidney stone that is a little bit like, akin to the pain of, of, of labor, have you guys heard that before? I'm thinking, kidney stone, baby, <laughs> not the same, Nice try, guys. (laughs) Just like we, our wives, endure labor pains to look forward to the arrival of the child. We We look forward to the arrival of the child so we endure it. So also we endure being prepared and looking for the arrival of Christ in the midst of the pain. That's what he's saying. Every time we hear of these rather painful events, they remind us of the joy, that that joyful end is coming. They are to turn our hearts toward the fulfillment of prophecy, to include the return of Christ. He, he lists three birth pains which happened before the fulfillment of the destruction of, uh, of the temple and continue to happen until the coming of Christ. Here they are, false Christ, catastrophic events, and everyone's personal favorite, persecutions. Now, what I I simply want to do in the next few minutes, it's a lie, I've got several pages left, is to look at each of these categories to see if they happened before the destruction of the temple and then to see if they are still happening today. Why? Here's my point. Here's, Here's my purpose for you, brothers and sisters, here it is. To remind us, their birth pains, they hurt, but they encourage us that something much better is coming and it's, they're supposed to, to direct our hearts and our minds and our eyes toward the return of Christ. So first Jesus says, don't let anyone mislead you because many will come in my name, either claiming to be me or, or, or they claim to be the Messiah or claiming to have come with my authority and, and, and their desire when they come will be to mislead you. Don't do it. Don't, don't listen to them. Later in the, in the chapter, Jesus calls them pseudo-Christ. That's the literal word, false Christ. Now, here's the question. Were there false Christ at the time of Jesus and before the destruction of the temple? I, I, we can look at history. Clearly, yes. Even the book of Acts names some. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel describes a certain man named Thutis who claimed that he was a somebody and gathered around him 400 men. They were eventually dispersed and killed. He also speaks of Judas, the Galilean, who who led a tax revolt against the the Romans. Some saw him as the Messiah. Acts 21, Paul himself is mistaken as an Egyptian who led 4,000 Jews uh, into the wilderness, a Messiah-like figure. The Jewish historian Josephus mentions this same Egyptian as well as Judas the Galilean, and a number of other impostors. The point is, there were lots of false messiahs during and after the time of Christ. There are lots. Okay. But are there today? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Way too many to mention. Some of the most famous and interesting are the Reverend Sun Young Moon, who claimed, uh, by the way, to be the second coming of Christ he said that he came to complete the mission that the first Christ, that is Jesus, failed to complete. You see, when Jesus came, he was supposed to provide both physical and spiritual salvation. But alas, he went to the cross, and so he could only provide spiritual salvation. But he came, the, the, the second coming of Christ, who was the third Adam, by the way, for a second. Third Adam, by the way, and he came having 12 children who were supposedly sinless to provide biological salvation redemption. Thankfully, Moon died in 2012, his movement undoubtedly to pass into obscurity. Jose Luis de Jesus, at least he's got the right name, of Miami, claimed to be the return to Jesus Christ, are you ready, and the Antichrist all rolled into one. Yep, that's right. He had the number 666 tattooed on his arm. He thought it was both Jesus the Christ and the Antichrist, together. His followers called him Jesus Cristo Cristo Hombre. Some of you know Spanish. The man, roughly translated, the man Christ Jesus. Thankfully, he died in 2013, after which his followers started calling him Melchizedek. I have no idea why, but I do know this. He was a false Christ. Next come a couple of Brits that are a little confused. David Ick, I would like to pronounce it Icky, of Great Britain, claimed to be the Son of God and the channel of the Christ Spirit. He had apparently been a famous soccer player, obviously too many headers. <laughs> he, he's, he's still alive, by the way, seeking followers. I would, however, not recommend him. David Shaler, next to him on the screen, also still alive, a former British MI5 secret agent, could be who claimed to be the Messiah in 2007. In fact, he said that David Icke was supposed to be his John the Baptist, uh, his forerunner, announcing him, Shaler, as the Christ. Oops! There have been hundreds of false Christs through the centuries. Dozens of second comings in the 20th and 21st centuries alone. And every time we hear such drivel, we might chuckle, we might be dismayed, but we should not be misled, and we should then look for the return of the true Christ. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and He will not come from Miami. He will come in the clouds with great power and glory, and every eye will see Him, and no one will be confused. What about the cataclysmic events in verses 7 and 8? Wars, earthquakes, famines. Now, again, uh, as those grow in number and magnitude today, people start proclaiming the soon return of Christ. And that may be, may not be. The problem is they aren't signs, Jesus says. They're simply birth pangs to remind us we need Jesus to come back. Listen, people, this place is broken. It doesn't work right. The pain of these events, and you can throw in whatever else you want, hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunami, whatever, cataclysmic events, the pain of these events are supposed to make us long through the consummation of all things. You see, he's going to come and deal with wars and and earthquakes and famines once and for all. Just a little aside, please note Jesus, God in the flesh, says these things must Happen. In other words, God is sovereignly in control of these cataclysmic events. They don't take him by surprise, they happen under his sovereign hand to bring about his purposes. So you go to northern Iraq today in the midst of significant war, and you have people groups like the Kurds and the who are Muslims and the Yazidis who are just weird, who are who are coming. To faith in Christ wars, rumors of wars these things have always been around wars and rumors of war have existed since the beginning of time certainly through the first century in fact it was the rebellion of the zealots in 66 AD that eventually led Titus to capture Jerusalem kill a million of its inhabitants and raise the entire city to include the temple to the ground in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Are there wars in our day? I've shared this with you before. There has not yet been one minute of worldwide peace in the 21st century. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The only one who can make it right is the Prince of Peace. Earthquakes then and now, I won't bore you. Famines then and now. But these should not frighten us. They must take place. But the end is not yet. They are simply birth pangs, regardless of what you heard at the prophecy conferences or the book that you read, reminding us of something to come. For the first century reader, the destruction of the temple. For us, the reminder that Jesus is coming back. These must take place. They have since he ascended. They will until he returns. They remind us he's coming back. We're supposed to long for it. Perhaps, however, the most challenging of Jesus' descriptions is found in verses 9 to 13, where he reminds us yet again that persecution is to be expected for followers of Jesus. Yes, yes we must talk about this again. Three times he uses the phrase, you will be handed over. Certainly he's talking to the disciples in the emphatic and the Greek. You will be handed over. So be on your guard to escape it, no. To be prepared for it and endure to the end. Look at the different sources from which persecution will come. First, you will be handed over to religious authorities specifically courts and synagogues. The the courts were the small councils, the small Sanhedrins, if you will, that were in each Jewish city. The Sanhedrins, uh, the the synagogues were their local places of worship. For early followers of Jesus, they were indeed flogged in these Sanhedrin, in local courts, in synagogues. Read through the book of Acts, and you find this happening all over the place to followers of Christ. Somehow we think that we're exempt. We aren't. The early apostles were arrested, beaten, threatened, and killed. Saul himself was involved in such opposition. And later, as Paul would receive such persecution at the hands of religious authorities, receiving, he said, in Second Corinthians 11, five times he was beaten, 40 lashes minus one. Second, they would be handed over to Persecution which will come at the hands of governors and kings, that is, secular rulers, religious rulers, authorities, secular authorities. Again, read through the book of Acts. We find opposition coming from governmental leaders like Agrippa and governors Festus and and Felix, Uh, Of course, even before the destruction of uh, of the temple, the first general persecution against the church came from the Roman emperor Nero himself, beginning in 64 A.D., six years before the destruction. Jesus was right. He's always right. Through the centuries, persecution against followers of Christ has persisted to the present day. Throughout much of the world, our brothers and sisters are facing severe persecution and even martyrdom. In some places throughout the Muslim world, naming Christ will cost you your life. Make no mistake about it, even genocide is being perpetrated against Christians simply because they name the name of Christ, just like he said. In addition to coming from religion's Other religions and secular authorities, Jesus says persecution will even come from family members. Brothers will betray brother to death. A father is child. Children will rise up against their own parents to have them put to death. This has happened again throughout church history. Even today, taking us to today, Muslim family members will betray professing believers. Even their own family betray them to the point of death. And verse 13 culminates by saying, you will be hated by all. He said, I've got some non-believers who like me. No, what he means is all kinds of people, religious authorities, secular authorities, even family members, everybody's going to hate you all because of my name, that is, you follow me. They don't like that. They don't like the gospel, it's foolishness, and they don't like being called sinners. And they don't like being told that Jesus is the only way, but he is. Birth pangs are supposed to make us long for heaven. What's our problem? Now, every once in a while, the criticism is perhaps rightly leveled against me, Scott, that I talk a lot about persecution. And that's true because it's in the Bible and we do go verse by verse and it just pops up everywhere. But someone I think rightly suggested that I that this that, that, that said that they often leave feeling the weight of the promise of persecution without much without much hope. I don't I don't want that to be the case. In this passage, Jesus gives us three words of encouragement in the midst of promised persecution. Look at them with me quickly. First, Jesus reminds us that his gospel must, notice the word must, just like these other things must happen, so also his gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Some who hold that this all happened by 70 AD suggest that this was accomplished by Paul as he established churches throughout the then known world before the destruction. Paul even says in Colossians chapter one, you ladies that are studying that, that the gospel is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. The point is the gospel was spreading. Jesus was building his church just like he said he would. But the gospel has continued to reach those who have never heard to the present day. The gospel must be preached to the ends of the age, to the ends of the planet. Just last week, we heard over 80% of our very small denominations' missional resources are being allocated to the 1040 window. That is the most unreached area of the world. Jesus said further in Matthew 24 that his gospel would be preached to all people groups and then the end would come. So as we are persecuted, we remember it is because of gospel mission It's because of the gospel. It must be preached. His name is being proclaimed to all nations. Sure, there's a cost, but it's worth it. Second, Jesus says in verse 11, when you are arrested and handed over, don't don't worry beforehand what you are going to say. The Holy Spirit will fill you and empower you and give you what you are to speak so so that you will even be a testimony to your persecutors. It's unbelievable. We certainly see that happen with Peter and John when they stood before the Sanhedrin. They they just healed the guy in Acts 3 and 4, and so they're arrested and and, and beaten and placed in prison overnight and then standing before the Sanhedrin, and it says there in Acts chapter 4, Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit, guess what he did? Proclaimed Jesus. Jesus. They were amazed that their, Sanhedrin was amazed at their confident answers. After all, these Galileans were ordinary, unschooled fishermen, yet they were turning the world upside down. What that means, what that promise is in the midst of promised persecution, what that encouragement is, is you will never face persecution alone. He will always be with us to the very end of the age. So the gospel will be preached to all the nations even in the midst of persecution. The Holy Spirit will be with you and empower you even in the midst of persecution. And third, verse 13, even though you will be hated by all because of my name, you bear the name of Christian, you bear the name of Christ follower, the one who endures to the end will be saved. To the end of what? The one who endures to the end of life. That doesn't mean that if you falter that you lose your salvation. No, he's just promised the presence and power of the Spirit. True believers will endure. To the end, that's his point, and they will be saved physically and spiritually. This is called the perseverance of the saints. You are saved not by your endurance, but by the grace of Christ, which fills you and saves you eternally. The one who endures to the end is the one truly saved. All of this, all of this, false Christs, cataclysmic events, even persecutions are supposed to make us long for, look for His appearing. So what's our problem? Our problem, I would suggest, is that we are too comfortable. And if you are too comfortable, you seldom think of the return of Christ. And so we live in this relative bubble in which we've enjoyed a great degree of religious freedom and even affirmation and popularity and I ask the question has it been a blessing or not? Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8 and with this I close for I consider that the sufferings of this present time sufferings sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For creation was subjected to futility. Earthquakes and famines and hurricanes. It's subjected to futility not willingly but Because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers. Now listen. Groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Do we? Do, do we? Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. These things are supposed to, as we pray for no persecution and we, and we and we pray for no cataclysmic events, and, and we, we, we these things are supposed to direct our hearts toward heaven. Do they? Let's stand for prayer. Um, Father, this uh, is an, an, indeed a challenging passage of scripture. Challenging not just because it's somewhat difficult to determine in, in our finite understanding when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and when he's talking about his return. But, but one thing we can take from the entire chapter is watchfulness, preparedness, being ready and eager for the return of Christ. Even creation groans Longing for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. May we also, in the midst of our difficulties, whatever those difficulties are right now, because we live in a broken world, a broken planet, doesn't work right. In the midst of whatever difficulty we're facing, may may it not cause us to look toward heaven and complain, but may it it cause us to look toward heaven and, and plead for the soon return of our Christ. who will come and, and make all things right. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.